Hello and welcome to Alchemist on being a heart-connected and transformative teacher. Alchemist is a series of interviews with inspirational first-year teachers. I am your host, Iman Gianetti, and today we are going to talk about the ins and outs of being a young math teacher. Our guest is the very talented Bernice Hamros. She graduated from the University of San Francisco with a Master in Urban Education and Social Justice. She is going to share with us her journey into becoming a math teacher. First in San Francisco at Balboa High School, where she became head of department in her fourth year of teaching, and now teaching in Los Angeles at Math and Science College Prep. Hi, Bernie. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so glad to have you here. Hi. Thank you for that introduction. So nice to meet you. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Um, hi, everybody. <laughs> I am currently a math teacher. I am finishing up my sixth year teaching. Um, I identify as a Filipina immigrant and a little bit about my history. Um, I moved to the United States in 2008 and I moved to Los Angeles because this is where my mom has settled. And I went the community college route and I transferred to Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. And when I got there, that's when I started learning about all these different social issues um, because my major at that time was global studies. I really wanted to work with the United Nations or some sort of international agency um, working with children. Um, and so I don't know how it happened, but after that, my first job um, was an AmeriCorps member. And so I worked, I was placed at a high school in South Central Los Angeles. And that's where I, I guess, got an introduction into the world of teaching. I kind of worked like um, as a as a paraprofessional, I guess you could say, you know, doing push in and pull out, you know, services for students who needed it the most. And I really enjoyed working with my ninth graders. And after that, I, I was really beginning to think about a career in teaching. Um, but because I really wasn't, you know, I didn't anticipate working in education and previously I wanted to work with children, I decided to um, go elsewhere. I moved to San Francisco and I took a job um, kind of like as a coordinator for a reading program working with elementary school children because I figured, you know, um, I have to make sure what age group I wanted to work with because the credential is different. And so I want to make sure that whatever I do, you know, that's it. So I moved to San Francisco. I, I ran a reading program there for a while, but I, I felt like it really wasn't my thing. I definitely enjoyed my work there. Um, but I knew that I wanted to work with teenagers and more in the math in the math world. So I started taking classes. I was involved in this organization called Pinoy Pinay Educational Partnerships. And I also got into the Urban Education and Social Justice Program in the University of San Francisco. And that's really where I learned that, you know, teaching is political and just being in the city politicized me and taught me how important it is to have teachers who understand their students and who are really there for the right reasons. 
And so I really found my community there. I felt like I had a solid group of, you know, peers who who were all in education for the same reason. And we really wanted to be down with the students and work with the community to fight oppression. Unfortunately, because, you know, San Francisco is really, really expensive, I eventually had to move back to LA where I am now. So currently, I am teaching math. And I teach 10th graders. Um, and this coming school year, actually, I will be transitioning out of the classroom. I'm really, I don't know, I have really mixed feelings about it. I did not anticipate leaving the classroom this early. But starting next school year, I'm going to be the assistant principal for my school. And I, I'm so excited for the larger impact I'm going to have. I'm so excited to help teachers be able to find their voice in the classroom so that they can serve our students in the best way possible. Um, but again, you know, I step into this new role with a lot of um, longing to be in the classroom working with students directly, but I am excited for this change as well. I'm just fascinated by your journey as you have been testing the water before completing your credential. It looks like teaching is part of who you are, either teaching elementary kids Tagalog and now as a math teacher. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I guess I forgot to mention all the other things that um, I did in between. So, yeah, I, I kind of spoke um, about my desire to make sure that I, you know, I went to a program and did a credential in in a subject that I can see myself doing long term. Um, but but in between, I did teach Filipino language classes. And that kind of just happened. Um, and it was really a huge unexpected blessing. So I was just looking for sub positions, just like you know, a lot of students in grad school for education do, um, because you get your experience and you get your foot in the door. Um, and so I was applying for sub positions in San Francisco Unified um, and Balboa High School called me and basically said, you know, our, our Filipino language teacher is retiring. We saw that you're a native speaker. Would you like to teach Filipino? And I'm like, no freaking way. I had no idea that this position existed. And I also had really no experience at that time and, you know, no formal training in our language. It, I just spoke it because that's where I grew up. But I just had all this learning to do. But I guess, you know, you, you, teaching, you learn by doing. And there's really only so much you can learn in a classroom. But being in a school, learning who your people are, getting to know your students, walking around the community where your school is in, that's where the real learning happens. So I am so eternally grateful for Balboa for taking a chance on me. And they've definitely molded me into what kind of educator I am and what kind of educator I, am, I will continue to be. And even though I'm no longer teaching language and I am teaching a subject that, you know, is not seen as as fun <laughs> as a language class, I, I definitely took a lot of the lessons I learned in BAL um, and took it with me to this position I currently hold. 
What are your biggest lessons learned? Biggest lesson in six years is just so hard to wrap my mind around. And I feel like teaching is is a profession where you learn something new every day. Maybe it's about your content. Maybe it's about yourself. Maybe it's about your students. Or maybe it's about the community in which your school is at. Um, but you learn something new every day. So I feel like when I'm asked, you know, what's your biggest lesson in the six years that you've taught I feel like whatever I say now is going to change tomorrow and it's going to change maybe even three hours um, later. Um, but what, what comes to mind right now is that I've had to learn what the true purpose of education is. And I've learned to really ingrain it in my mind and make that my guide in my interactions with students in planning curriculum in designing lessons, in creating rubrics and grading assessments. And I think I learned this through my experience in San Francisco. Um, again, that's the place where I really was politicized and I learned that teaching is political and teaching is for our liberation. Um, and, and that was really hard for me to, to understand fully. Um, I grew up like I said, in the Philippines, I grew up and was put in Catholic school all my life. And there was a big, big emphasis on um, obedience, blind obedience to some degree, right? And I, I thought that that's what school is about. You know, you comply, you do your work, and then you get rewarded. And now I understand that that is not... <laughs> It's exactly the opposite of what we want and should want our classrooms to be like and schools to feel like. So yeah, teaching is for, for the liberation of our students and their families, especially the students that I serve, black and brown youth in general. You know, it's really important for them to have these positive um, relationships with us, really strong bonds with adults who are supportive um, so that they are able to do whatever they want in their lives. And really, all our job is to prepare them for that, whatever that may be. They get to dictate what they want to be. They have it in them. And our, our job is to just help them get there. And I think it's so hard. Oh, let, let's just say that it's easy to forget that. It's easy to be so focused on the day-to-day it's so easy to be focused on what activities you're going to do tomorrow and how you're going to fill a two-hour block of time. It's so easy to get distracted by the politics of it all um, and forget that at the end of the day, this is about the kids. And every decision, every instructional decision, every curricular decision has to be centered and grounded around what the kids deserve. Um, and so that's definitely something that I've had to learn. I'm still learning it. But yeah, it's it's a big lesson to learn that it's not about me. It's not about my my feelings. It's about the, the kids who are in front of me. I'm sure the first year teaching math at Balboa High School must have been challenging. Tell us more about your mastery-based grading. I am so excited to learn that you have been using it for the past two years. Yeah, definitely. I would love to talk about mastery-based grading. I think it's uh, something that's super awesome. You know, grading is 
is the sometimes not so fun part of the job, right? You give a test, you have a stack of papers, you have to grade it, grades are due a certain day, and you have to make sure you grade everybody's. It's it's typically not why people teach, right? Um, and so I think mastery-based grading kind of redefined for me the purpose of grading and redefined for me how students can use their grades to make themselves better. And I, I only learned honestly about this in the last two years and only in my current school because in the past, I would grade like what a traditional grade book might look like. So for example, I would have a do now classwork, homework, do now classwork, homework, and a quiz or whatever, you know? Um, and so my grade book would be comprised of all of these different components and every single component is worth a certain percent in their final grade. Um, but mastery-based grading kind of like takes out all of that and just grades students based on um, how much mastery they have for a certain skill. So in, in theory, they have multiple chances to show mastery in a certain skill as they gain more skills, um, as, they, as they continue to practice those same set of skills in different um, contexts. And I'll give an example in a second. But I, I think mastery-based grading is such a hard concept to wrap your brain around, especially if your curriculum is not created where skills cycle back or is not created intentionally to allow for those moments for students to have another chance because really it's it's so unfair for us to be able to hold it against the student if they for example had a really bad august or september and those months and weeks that they didn't turn in work or anything like that, that's going to hang over their heads for the rest of the semester. And I've seen, unfortunately, some instances where, you know, it's the final exam and students say, why am I going to study for the final exam when I know there's no way for me to pass? Like, even if I get 100%, I'm not going to get a passing grade. Or they have, for example, they might need a 98% just to get a C. Um, or a D. And that's really unfair for us to expect from students. And it's really not teaching them that they should continue to push themselves and continue to practice. And before I go into the nitty gritty, I, I, another thing I wanted to say about master-based grading is that it really aligns itself well with growth mindset. Because again, students get different opportunities to to show mastery for a certain topic. So I guess I can give an example. And this is not, you know, I guess factual in a way, because I'm not an expert in, in elementary math standards. I teach high school, like I've said earlier. So let's just say, and again, I don't know if this is, these are what the standards say, but let's just say that a student is expected by the end of the year to master adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing, right? And again, let's take that example where a student has a really bad August and September. And when these four operations were introduced to them using whole numbers, they just were really checked out. Maybe something 
terrible was happening in their family. Maybe they were sick and had to miss a lot of days for school. And so when they got taught one plus one, one minus one, one times one, and one divided by one, they were just not there. They showed either really little mastery or no mastery at all. And so they, they get really little grades for that. And um, let's say months later or weeks later, those same four skills get reintroduced. But now, instead of um, practicing them using whole numbers, students are now doing those operations with fractions. So instead of doing one plus one, what if now they're doing one half plus one half? And then one half minus one half, and then one half times one half, and then one half divided by one half. Right. And so they are practicing the same set of skills, but in a different context. But now maybe the student is in a better headspace and is better able to concentrate. And assuming that their whole number practice builds up to their fraction um, practice, doesn't it then follow that if students show mastery in fraction operations, that they also mastered what was before? which was whole number operations. And so students get this brand new chance. And if they show mastery in fraction operations, then essentially all else is forgotten, which I think is so fair, If especially, again, if your curriculum is well-designed and intentional. Because if everything builds up to each other, then really at the end of the semester or at the end of the year, you're supposed to just be looking at the student who's in front of you and not penalizing them for terrible personal circumstances that happened in their lives two, three months ago. And so I feel like mastery-based grading lends itself, again, to giving students opportunities and chances in showing up at a later time in the year. And some students, they just take more time. Maybe they didn't get it in August. Maybe they didn't get it in September, but I don't know what happened. Something clicks in November and now they get it. Then I should be able to then replace old, old grades and not hold that against them, you know? And I, I just really love this idea of giving students the opportunity and the chance to always better themselves because then now every assessment or every practice has a purpose and not just another, another item on, on their grade book. And I, I think one, one other thing I want to say about master-based grading is that a huge misconception is that the, the amount of reassessments that students get um, sends the message that they have unlimited chances or their rigor is down, um, we're lowering expectations. But really, that's, that's not it. It's just that it's, it's a more fair and just way to assess students. It's not just unlimited you know, unlimited reassessments for no reason. And I'm changing your grade because, you know, there's no reason at all. It's, it's just because now you're showing up and now you're showing mastery. So, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to give you the grade you deserve at this moment. And after a while, if you're really consistent with it, students who traditionally, who are doing well in the beginning, know that they have to keep up that grade too. Because I feel like sometimes, Teachers think that, okay, then they don't have to try anymore. And that's not true because, again, if they're doing adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing whole numbers and they did well, when they do those same four skills in fractions, they have to still do well. 
And if they have to do those same four skills, maybe with negative numbers or with decimals, they still have to do well. So it's not that you're lowering rigor. It's that you're just um, giving students the opportunity to show you where they are at at any given period of time. So it's kind of like a snapshot. And one other thing that I, I love about mastery-based grading is that when students, um, let's say for the final, reassess, they see the, the ups and downs of the trajectory of their grades. They are able to pinpoint exactly, okay, do I need to practice multiplication? I think I need to practice multiplication. And I think I'm good on addition. You know, because they're ex- able to exactly pinpoint what skill they still need to master and practice and focus on that. So more than, you know, a tool of, you know, giving grades, um, it also teaches students that they can continue to practice and they can be strategic in practicing what skills they need before they leave the grade level that they are currently on. So yeah, I said a lot. I love mastery-based grading. I, um, and I can talk about it all day. I love that you put joy at the center of learning math. Could you share some example of how you do it on a daily basis? Yes, um, definitely. I think joy is so key in the classroom. Again, especially in a math classroom. Maybe I'm just biased, but um, I bring this up again and again. A lot of trauma surrounds math and especially in communities of color where, um, you know, there's almost generational trauma there where parents unintentionally send messages to their students that, oh, math sucks. I hated math when I was in school. Or maybe they are not explicit in it, but, you know, all those little things kind of pass on to the students. And, you know, having joy in the classroom and modeling what joy in learning looks like is so, so fun. (laughs) Um, And I think that it really makes the experience positive for students. You know, it's what makes them want to go into your classroom. It what's, it's what makes me want to go into work. And, you know, being vulnerable, joy, experiencing joy together, I feel requires a lot of vulnerability. So to get to this space, there has to be a lot of trust and there has to be a strong relationship between um, all of the students in the room and between the students and myself. So, you know, without discounting that, um, joy can only be really felt and be present in the room if, if that already is a given and that already exists. And for me, you know, I feel happiest when I see students have that light bulb moment and they're so excited. And I've had this happen where, you know, students finally understand something and they cannot wait to tell their friends about it. And I see them interact and explain to each other, um, you know, this new discovery that they've had. Um, And sometimes it's even more awesome to see those debates happen um, where they challenge each other or disagree with each other. And I love being a fly on the wall. I love being the facilitator in those types of experiences because those are the times that they're going to remember from being in my classroom. Because honestly, no one's going to remember the quadratic formula, but they might remember the feeling that they had when they were talking to their to their friend about it and they felt so sure and so excited and they were able to collaborate and do problems together so joy 
in the classroom for me looks like that. It's literal smiles on students' faces, eyes wide and bright um, when they finally understand something. I, I love to push students and ask them the why questions and the how questions. And it really makes them see that math is just not, you know, whole random sets of formulas, but rather math is a tool. And there's a whole bunch of ways to get to the correct answer. I really try to make sure that students understand that I really don't care what the final answer is. I want to know how you got there. And that's, that's where the joy is. That's where the discovery is. And I always tell them, you know, math is a tool that humans literally just invented so that they can communicate with each other um, and so that they can understand the world around them. They invented math so that they can make houses. <laughs> they invented math so they can count their money. You know, all of these things that we now just take for granted, like fractions and negative numbers and decimals, all these things were just literal inventions of humans. Even how we write our numbers are just inventions by people. And, and that then makes it so that math is just a story. And math is just, you know, a, an experience to be had. And I try my best to make sure that all of our classes connect to each other. Like I said, that it's just one big story. That I'm just, it's not a workshop. It's not random things that have nothing to do with the real world. It might seem like it in the moment. But, you know, I always tell them, just give me a chance. I promise this will make so much sense and it will be so cool if you understand it conceptually. Because plugging things into a formula or typing things onto the calculator honestly is not fun. Not fun for me, especially not fun for them. But if they, again, understand the beauty in it, that's what gets them excited. And that's what makes them want to do higher level math. And at our school, you know, our, our school is called Math and Science College Prep. You know, it's in the name that we want them. We, we want to push them to be in a STEM career and a STEM major because, you know, STEM professionals of color, especially women of color, it's not really the majority, unfortunately. And so when we create those moments in the classroom that makes them feel like, you know, this is something I can do with my life, then I feel like, you know, I've, I've done all that I can for that student and it's going to be up to them to take it to the next level. But if I do not create a classroom that is happy, um, still rigorous, you know, then, then I did not do my job. Then I shut them out of opportunities that they are so capable of, of being able to take advantage of. They are able to become engineers. They can be scientists. They can be doctors. And that will only happen if they find joy and purpose in everything that we do in the classroom. Learning can be joyful. How is distance learning going for you? Yeah, distance learning, um, the question of the year. Um, I think, you know, for many reasons, distance learning has been challenging for everybody. Um, and even outside of my work, you know, it just the reality of being in lockdown is physically, mentally, and emotionally taxing. And I'm sure, as we all know, you know, that's not just us. That's everybody in our lives. And in our case, everybody, including our students. I think the toughest part of, of distance learning is admitting that all of the things that you want to do, 
um, you can't do. You can't do all of it. Um, and what's difficult to accept sometimes is that you're not able to do these things for reasons that you cannot change, right? So I cannot change how the county or the country or the city responds to COVID. I cannot control how people are careful or not careful with how they interact with each other safely or unsafely. Um, and it's just hard, especially for somebody like me who, you know, I, I always want to be 100% for my students. And just my 100% this year is just not near enough what they need and what they deserve to really thrive as as students. Um, and sometimes that's hard to accept. And I think as I transition into my new role as assistant principal, you know, at this time, I'm beginning to think how I can support other teachers um, so that they can support their students. So even though, you know, we're adults and we're definitely, you know, maybe more capable of of dealing with the challenges of lockdown and COVID compared to our our students, there there are still difficult challenges that we all have to face every day. And so, yeah, it, it, it's just hard. It's hard if you feel burnt out and you see everybody's burnt out. And I think towards the end of the year, you know, I just found myself responding to students a lot whenever they ask for help. And I, I always say, you know, let me know what else I can do. And after a while, I realized, you know, why do I keep saying that? Like, literally, what else can I do? Um, and it wasn't until we transitioned into hybrid learning that there was now something else, something new that I could do for the students. And I know it's it's hard to transition back into hybrid learning or some sort of in-person um, teaching, but some of the students really needed to be in school. I was actually one of the first teachers in our school to volunteer to be in person and even though, you know, I didn't know what I was doing and I was the first one trying out new technology and figuring out how to interact with in-person and online students all at the same time, you know, all of these things were, were difficult to figure out. But just being able to see students again and being able to see that they are doing much better whenever they're around their peers, that was just so you know, it's so cliche, but it, it made it all worth it, even though it was it was difficult. And I one thing I really appreciate about our school is that we gave our families and our students the option to continue 100% being online, depending on how safe they feel. Um, so we definitely don't want to put students and families in a in a compromised position and mandate them to be in person if they don't feel safe to. But, you know, having that option for students who need and want to and can be in person is critical when we think about equity. So, yeah, the thankfully, so far, um, in terms of hybrid learning, the responses from our surveys from parents and students and staff have been overwhelmingly positive. It's not perfect, but I think it's a great starting point, especially as we start thinking about what fall um, and school year 2021-2022 um, is going to look like because there's definitely still going to be some form of hybrid learning instruction that's going to happen. We're, it's not, we're not back to normal yet. And um, I am thankful to have had the chance in these last um, few weeks to be, to be in person with the students. Um, and hopefully we can come back stronger for them next year.